Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. As some of you have started to wrestle with the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, many of you have asked, many have asked about James 2 and the belief of demons. Or the words of Christ in Matthew where he says, by your fruit you shall know them. Or what about confession? in the gospel. What about that? What about confession in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I decided what we're going to do instead of heading to 2 Timothy right away is that we are going to address these issues one by one each week for a few weeks here in a series of messages on clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to revisit James 2. If you've been here since the beginning, you might have heard some of this before. But next week, we'll move over to Matthew chapter 7. During the time of the Reformation, if you've studied James chapter 2, you know that Martin Luther felt that James was teaching a works-based theology. He had problems with the book of James. He referred to the book of James as that straw epistle. Luther felt that the book of James, as well as the book of Jude and Hebrews and book of Revelation, he believed they all lacked apostolic authority. And in 1522, he placed these four books at the end of his Bible. He said that they were of secondary value. And it seems that Luther did not believe these four books were truly the word of God. A pastor stopped to spend some time alone in a park where a group of kids came running up to him. And before he could say anything to these kids, one of the oldest of these kids, this is how it works, one of the older one normally gets a little chatty, and one of the older kids had launched into a complicated story of all that was wrong in their family. Don't you love it when your kids sell you out? <laughs> Listen to what this girl said. She said, hi, my name is Deanna, and I'm 12. My sister is Christy, and she is 10. Mikey, my brother, doesn't he look fat in his T-shirt? He is six. Actually, though, we all have different dads, and my dad is dead. Christy's dad disappeared, and Mikey's dad beats him up. So our mom is divorcing the creep. My mom and her fiancé, Larry, are at the casino because they need time alone. She bought us all a burrito at the gas station and told us just to stay in the park for two hours. Can we sit by you? We're trying to be polite. He agreed. And so he started to ask the kids some questions. Did they live in town? Deanna, who seemed to be the spokesperson for this group of kids, answered for them that they did not live in town. And she said, we used to live in town, but my mom lost her job. I don't... I don't like living in a tent. And then she asked, by the way, what is your job? And he told them that he was a pastor. And after a long silence, she asked this. She said, Mr. Pastor. I like that. 
Mr. Pastor, can I tell you something? And can you tell me something? She said this. I've heard stories about Jesus walking around, caring for people, loving people. Why doesn't he do that anymore? Could it be Christians that Christ has entrusted his people, us, the body of Christ, believers, with the responsibility of demonstrating his love, and quite often we are failing? See, I believe the Bible with all my heart where it teaches that there are still people in this world crying out, if you have faith, if you have faith, show it to us with how you reach out in love. Show it to us with your works. Now, James now applies this to how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to read this with me. Notice this in verse 14 where he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith Save him. Now, because of a gross misunderstanding of this text, some will say that this passage is teaching that you must have faith plus good works in order to be saved. This is the teaching of many denominations. Others head in another direction by bringing works into the back door of the gospel of Christ by saying that while faith is all you need for salvation, faith will never be alone, meaning that if there are no works, your faith is said to be counterfeit. Let us be clear on this point. Let's be very clear. This position is not saying you should have good works like Ephesians 2.10. That's not what they're saying. They're saying you will have good works. And they never define how many good works you must have in order to prove your salvation. That's a slippery slope. That comes back to works. This is the Calvinistic approach to Scripture. In other words, the Calvinist will say that if you truly have faith, it will persevere and show itself in ongoing fruit or good works in your life. This is bringing works into the back door of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with this understanding, perseverance is no longer just meaning once saved, always saved. Perseverance now means a certain measure of good works, a certain measure. Do you hear that wording? A certain measure of good works will persevere until the end. In other words, they will say that if you have faith, it will truly show itself in ongoing fruit or good works in your life. And this is dangerous ground because this is bringing works back into the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a roundabout way of saying that in order to have life in Christ, you must, keyword, must have good works. They do not make it a condition to be saved, but they make good works a requirement to prove your salvation. Now, the other side of the argument is the Arminian viewpoint. They teach that if you do not have good works, you will lose your salvation. And I think the problem of both groups is that they end up back in the parking lot of the Catholic Church trying to bring works back into the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're both wrong. Let's make some simple observations from the book of James this morning. By my count, and I'm not the smartest tech in the room, I count and I find the term brethren used 15 times in this book. 15 times in every single chapter, meaning simply this. James was not questioning their faith for salvation. He referred to them as believers 15 times. 
What comes before our text in James chapter 2? Instructions and warning to believers teaching about trials and temptations. Then the warning to believers about showing partiality. What follows after our text? More instructions and warnings to believers. Look closer at the wording in verse 14. My brethren, my brethren, he says it. See, some today look at churches of hundreds or even thousands and think it was a mixed company back then because today unbelievers come into the church all the time. It happens every single day on a Sunday morning. I think there's probably some unbelievers here today. But not in the early first century. That's not the picture we get from the New Testament. Quite different. These were small house churches, often suffering intense persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. James is addressing believers. And both verse 14 and verse 16 use this expression, what does it profit? Meaning, what does it benefit you or someone else if a person has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, we see that word save and we jump in our minds and we make the mistake in our minds of thinking that it's an automatic reference to eternal salvation. But most often in the New Testament, it's not. Here in verse 14, it is in the present tense. Listen, not once, not one single time in the book of James does the word save refer to salvation from hell. Not one single time does it refer to salvation from hell. It always refers to salvation from sin's damage in a believer's life in the book of James. Every single time. And the required answer from the Greek syntax is no, faith without works cannot save a person. Now, obviously, if you're looking at this and you're saying, wait a minute, faith without works can't, can't save a person, that's a problem. Okay, that's a problem if we're understanding the theology of the New Testament. This creates tension with the teaching of Paul. And the historical answer of the church, especially some today in the reform camp, is that James and Paul were talking about two different kinds of faith. And they'll say that this is why some of the modern translations insert a word in verse 15 to make it say, can such faith, such faith save him? Or can that faith save him? But that's not in the text. The text is, can faith save him? So Reformed theology believes that James is talking about something called spurious faith, the kind of faith that will not save you. That's confusing. That confuses my little head. The kind of faith that will not save you. It is an invention of Reformed theology. They define this spurious faith as faith, listen to their definition, they define it as faith that expresses belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins, but if that person has not made a decision to forsake everything in their lives to follow Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation, their faith is said to be spurious, meaning they are never truly saved. Well, it's impossible to forsake everything at the moment of salvation. You don't get cleaned up to take a bath. That's impossible. The Bible teaches it is the object of your faith that saves you, not the quality of your faith. You either believe the gospel of Jesus Christ or you don't. There's not a lot of middle ground. When faith meets the right object, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the result is regeneration. Faith in the Bible means just always one thing. I'm going to give it to you. It's not that hard. It means faith. 
Faith means faith. You don't always have to obey everything you believe. I'm saying you should, but we always don't. Take people that smoke. People believe it will kill them. They absolutely do. I mean, I used to smoke before I was a Christian. We all know smoking will kill us, but people still do it. They act on it. Speeding is another example. Let's see the hand sinners. Who speeds? I do. Absolutely. I could tell you which roads I speed on. Speeding is another example. We know it's not right. We know it's dangerous. We know it's wrong. And we know it can lead to a ticket. But we choose to act in a manner that is not consistent with our belief. And if you're honest in your own life at times, Christians, you are inconsistent with your faith, with what you believe in the Bible. Every Christian is. When James said faith without works cannot save you, he's not talking about eternal life. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about physical deliverance. Now, 58% of the time, the word for save that is used refers in the New Testament to physical deliverance from danger from harm, from sickness. Less than half of the time it refers to eternal salvation, eternal life. Now, Paul used it this way in the boat in Acts 28. He said, Lord, save us. Disciples of Christ used it this way when Jesus was asleep on the boat and they woke up asking for the Lord to save them, deliver them, help them. Five times James used this word. In the other places he used it, it's obvious it refers to physical deliverance. So the context, the context, 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 it always determines the meaning. And if you look at James, guess what? There's no mention of heaven and there's no mention of hell, nowhere. And the word for profit that James uses, it means to heap up or accumulate. And where has James mentioned heaping up or accumulating anything? Well, right before this in verses 12 and 13, where he was talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Well, the only judgment believers will face is at the judgment seat of Christ. And immediately after our passage, what does James discuss in James 3.1? Stricter judgment for those who teach. And once again, he refers to them as brethren. Brethren, meaning the context right before this is about the judgment seat of Christ. The context right after this is about the judgment seat of Christ. So here it is in verse 14. What is he saying? He's saying this. What does it profit? What profit will it be to you at the judgment seat of Christ if you have no works? Can faith without works deliver you from the consequence of sin when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Can it? Back in chapter 1, James already mentioned that sin breaks our fellowship with God. That sin can lead to physical death. I hope you guys understand that concept. Even today, sin can lead to physical death, even for believers. The issue in this text is not about true faith compared to what they call counterfeit faith. The issue is faith alone, without works, before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to think of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Two of the servants doubled their talents, but one buried his. See, the Lord is looking for a prophet. The Lord is looking for a prophet. He made an investment in us. And he wants us to use what he's given us. But if we sit on the talents given to us or bury it, there will be no profit. 
And so here's the question, believer in Jesus Christ. The question is this. What did you do with those years? What did you do with those gifts? What did you do with those opportunities? Because you see at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, God will not judge you for your faith. He will judge you on that day for your works. That's what the Bible teaches us. No works, no reward, no profit. See, faith and faith alone gets you a ticket to heaven. That's the answer there. But works are your redemption stamps for rewards once you get there. So the question before us now is now that you are saved is this. Do you want your life, Christian? Do you want your life, believer in Jesus Christ, to really count for all eternity? Remember the context. James has been looking at the royal Law of love. James is calling for love for one another in the family of God. And so here comes the example in verses 15 and 16 of someone that is a believer but is not living by faith. What does he say? He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Now, we remember from church history that the church of Jerusalem was poor. And I'm not talking like United States poor. I'm not talking that kind of Western poor. People needed help. This was extreme poverty. This was desperate. Not enough clothes, not enough food. Empty words that don't fill an empty stomach. So the assumption in this text is that the person has the ability to help, but yet they don't. What good would my words be if you were hungry or cold and you're out there? What does that profit you? How does that help you? Second time, James has actually asked this because hollow words are useless. Words don't help your brother and sister in Christ now. Kind words don't help them. And they don't do us any good when we stand before Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been on the wrong side of this. Have you ever been on the wrong side of this? I have. Maybe you never missed a meal, but you had a need. Maybe you had someone to listen to, to help with whatever they could. Someone to give a shoulder to cry on. And all you got were those hollow, empty words. May the Lord be with you. Church of Jesus Christ should be different, shouldn't it? Church of Jesus Christ should be different. This is telling your fellow Christian, your fellow believer, be assured that God will meet your needs is the idea here, but don't offer up a blanket. Don't offer up a warm meal to your brother or sister in Christ. So James pronounces the verdict. Watch what he says. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, here's where we got to be careful. James does not say that the faith isn't real. Faith is what? Trust. Faith is belief. You either have faith or you do not. But put this back into the context of verses 15 and 16. Believers do this all the time, giving encouraging words and fail to help. See, there's a lot of noise out there today on this passage because of the resurgence of Reformed theology. And James does not say that the faith is not real. He does not say that. He does not say the faith is not real. He does not say it's counterfeit faith. He does not say that. And he's not saying they were never alive. And he didn't question their salvation. He didn't give an altar call. He didn't play just as I am 16,000 more times. Think of a fruit tree very much alive. Very much alive, bearing fruit, but now it has no fruit. It needs to be stimulated. Now, it's said often 
That dead in verse 17 always means dead. That's what's always taught. You always hear that. Dead means always dead. And therefore, James was saying, if you don't have works, you are never alive. But here's the problem with that interpretation. Here's the problem with that understanding of Scripture. In Romans 7, 8, a verse you need to jot down, a verse you need to learn. Paul used the same exact word that we have here in both verse 17 and verse 20 in the majority of the manuscripts in James. And listen to Paul from Romans. What did he say? For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now listen to that part again. For apart from the law, sin was what? Dead. Same word. Same exact precise word. And if dead always means no life, then the Apostle Paul was saying in Romans that before the law came, there was no sin. See, that doesn't make sense. But that's what he'd be saying. Before the law came, there was no sin. That before the law, sin did not exist. But everyone understands that's not true. Everyone understands in Romans 7, 8 that Paul was saying, apart from the law, sin was what? Less effective. Sin was less effective. Sin was less effective or less useful, which is the correct meaning back in James. See, it's a little simplistic to think of death here in James as referring to only salvation from hell. Death is used in every language known to man as a metaphor for a number of things. Let me give you a few, and and they're cheesy, but here they come. You're dead wrong. He's a dead drunk. He's a dead duck. You, You get the point. It's just a metaphor. The Bible does this often. You can look up Romans 4.19, Romans 7.9, and again in Romans 8.10. So here's my point. My point is this. It's simply wrong, dead wrong. See the pun? I like it. It's wrong to think of James' metaphor about dead faith as referring to someone without genuine faith. That's wrong. James was calling for the brethren to practice their faith. Faith that does not help others in the body of Christ is useless. So why didn't Martin Luther think of this? The question, what happened? Why didn't he think of this? Instead of calling James a straw epistle, why didn't Luther see this interpretation in the text? And there's a reason, and there's a warning to us in this reason. Because his view of the end times precluded him from seeing it. See, Luther didn't believe the 1,000-year reign of Christ. He didn't believe in the 1,000-year reign of Christ that is promised in Revelation 20. He was impacted by the teachings of Augustine, not in a good way. And neither men believed in the tribulation. And so Luther didn't believe in the judgment seat of Christ for believers after the rapture of the church. But that's the discussion that's being had in James. That's what James is talking about. So it was not on his radar. And the influence from men like Augustine and Luther is why many in the church still teach that James 2 is about counterfeit faith. An old story tells about a small town in Maine, and it was announced that a dam would be built across the river that ran through their little town, and a much-needed hydroelectric plant would be put in, but the town would be submerged, put underwater. People were given time to relocate, But something happened in that town, even though they were all given time. All the improvements came to an end. No painting was done. No one bothered to paint their house anymore. No repairs were made to the road. They started to look like the roads in Alaska. 
The buildings started to fall apart. Sidewalks were falling apart. Day by day, the town got worse. And long before that water ever came, the town looked abandoned, even though the people had not yet moved away. One person explained it this way. They said, quote, when there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. See, without a future, there is no hope. Without a future in Jesus Christ, there is no hope. That's why we study the end times. And James is teaching that there's so much more to life than just heaven and hell. Christian, you need to get past just that basic understanding in your faith. There's so much more to the Christian life. And if we build on the firm foundation of our faith with good works towards one another in the body of Christ, the meaning of our life will be preserved in the storm. So this is a healthy faith. That's what James is looking for, a healthy faith in the here and now. And the value of what we do will be preserved for all eternity at the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's watch the wording closely in our next two verses. I want you to watch this because it's going to show exactly what I've been talking about. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God. You do well, even the demons believe and tremble. Now this expression, there is one God. It was the opening line of the Jewish confession of faith found in Deuteronomy 6. This is something that the Jews would recite in both the morning and in the evening, and some still do this to this day. It is a tradition in the Jewish culture to have these words be the last words you speak before you die. James is simply using a rhetorical device here, and this is what so many Christians fail to understand in James 2. He's using a rhetorical device where he takes on the persona of a hypothetical objector. It is called the objector reply formula. This was very, very common back then in their understanding. See, the average person reading this in the first century, which is what we have to look at, it doesn't matter what we think or feel it says, the average person understanding the original tent back then understood they would look at this expression and assume that a counter-argument was now being introduced into the text. Anytime you see that phrase in Scripture, but someone will say, or someone has said, or you might say, these are all just the author anticipating an objection to what has been written down. And so they are answering that objection. You see the same exact thing in Romans chapter 9. You see the same exact thing in 1 Corinthians 15. And the response usually starts with something like this. Oh, foolish one. Oh, foolish one. We're going to look at this in verse 20. But the point that James was trying to make... The point that James is trying to make to the early Christians throughout this book is that faith and works absolutely should, keyword, should go together. They should to bring about maturity in Christ. And ignore all the quotation marks in all of our translations because the Greek doesn't have them. So the objector is speaking in verses 18 and 19, and the response is verse 20. The hypothetical objector is saying faith and works do not have to go together. That's absolutely absurd. That's what the hypothetical objector is saying. Faith and works don't have to go together. The objector is saying it doesn't matter if you start with faith and then show men works or if I start with works and demonstrate what I believe. Either way, he's saying there's no connection. Now, reformed teachers 
look at verse 19 and say, even demons believe, but they don't have good works. They say it's like those without true faith, those with spurious faith, they say. But this is just still the objector. The Greek proves that out. You do well, literally, you do good works. You do good works. So the objector was saying, you believe in the unity of God. There is one God and you do good works. The demons believe the same thing and do not do good works. They tremble. So what we have in the text is the objector is stating that he has proven his point with this illustration of the demons. He has two people believing the same thing, that there is one God, one person with works, one person without works. The objector is saying faith and works have no built-in connection, that faith cannot be made visible by works. And James was confronting this defensive mindset of believers when their works don't match their faith. And the objector is saying, I don't need to prove my works with what I believe. And so the objector rests his case. And here comes a response from James, proclaiming now that what we believe affects how we live. There's a connection between faith and works. Not a test of salvation. Key difference. Not a test of salvation like Reformed theology teaches. But faith without works is useless. You need to jot that down. Faith without works is useless. That's all James is trying to say. James gives two illustrations, one that starts in verse 20 with Abraham. And he says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see, key phrase, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Remember the theme of this section. Faith without works is useless. It doesn't profit anyone. Faith without works is useless. This is the beginning of the response from James. This is where James starts in verse 20. Before it, it was the hypothetical objector. Now James is, is coming back and teaching. And he's saying faith and works should, should go together. They won't always, but they should. And some of the manuscripts, interesting here. The manuscripts say in verse 20, faith without works is dead. Which we saw before, the same wording is used in Romans to mean ineffective. But listen, some of the manuscripts here in James actually say the word useless. They actually do. And this is why you see this in many of the newer translations. Faith without works is useless. And here's why this is important. Some of you don't care. I'm sad that you don't care. I care. I care a lot because it affects our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many churches today, this isn't being taught correctly. You have an opportunity to understand the word of God this morning. It tells us that very early on in the church, we are talking with these manuscripts, second and third century. When they write useless, this was their understanding of James 2. They understood it. That's the correct meaning. Faith without works is useless. They understood that there was no idea back then that James was not talking about this counterfeit faith that, that was spurious, like Reformed theology teaches today. That wasn't the teaching. It was not the teaching of the early church. James was referring to just simply ineffective or useless faith. 
In verse 20, this is the response to the objector. And this is why it says, do you want to know? Now you, in the singular, this is all the way through verse 23. And it changes. And that's how we know some of what I'm talking about. is because you can see it in the Greek if you're reading this. Because this is the response and in refuting the objector. And what did James do? He chose the most prestigious name in Jewish history. He chose Abraham. And it was well known to the believers that Abraham was justified by faith. The early church knew this. And this is what James is going to mention down in verse 23. Let's skip down. Let's read it again real quick. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. It's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham was justified before God when he believed God. Now, fulfilled here does not refer to a prophecy, but rather, as we are about to see in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith was demonstrated before men. And remember, in Genesis 15, what happened? Abraham was still without an heir, but God told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in heaven. And Abraham believed God. Now, this does not mean that simply Abraham believed what God said. This means that his faith, his faith was centered upon God himself. It was centered upon God himself. His faith was in who God is and that the character of God assured the fulfillment of the promise. And so this idea here that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness means that God took Abraham's faith as ground for being reconciled to him. And another possible translation of the word for righteousness would be justification. Justification, that should sound familiar. Meaning that his faith in God made him justified in the eyes of God. Let me say that again. Abraham was justified before God by faith already in Genesis 15. Might have even happened before Genesis 15. At 100 years of old, Abraham believed God and God knew the faith in Abraham's heart. But there's still something in verses 21 and 22 that we need to deal with. Abraham demonstrated his faith when he offered Isaac on the altar, didn't he? This was Genesis 22. And here comes a critical piece of information if you're wrestling with this. James now tells us that there's another kind of justification. What is there? There is a justification by works. Now, this is one of the reasons people today misunderstand James 2. They miss this point. It's assumed that this is only about justification plus works, but it's not. That's to misunderstand. Justification can either mean to declare righteous, or it can also mean to demonstrate righteousness. As I read from Romans 4, compare it back to what we've been reading in James. And notice the wording. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but what? Not before who? God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, Paul uses Abraham as an illustration of someone that's justified before God by faith alone. But I want you to notice these key words in verse 2. What does he say about Abraham being justified by works? He says, not before God. Not before God. 
See, both James and Paul taught that there are two kinds of justification in the Bible. One is justification before God. This is Genesis 15 for Abraham. God declares us righteous based on our faith. The other type of justification is before men, where works demonstrate our faith. See, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. And if we all we ever read about Abraham was that he was willing to sacrifice his son, that doesn't give me much hope that he was saved, right? Because that's not faith. We would have no reason to think he was a believer because there's nothing about righteousness in that text. Verse 23, back in James, already covered Abraham justified by faith before God. But now in verses 21 and 22 in James, this is James starting to respond to the objector. And he's saying this, don't you see that Abraham was also justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac to God? This is Genesis 22. This is Genesis 22, at least 25 years after Genesis 15, when Abraham was already justified by faith before God. See, James is saying, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? You see, he says, these are the key words in the text. This is not about God at this point. James is talking about what others can see about your faith, Christian. It is that people can see a person is justified by works. People can see how faith is cooperating or working together with works. And by works, a person's faith is made mature or complete. This has been the entire point of James 2. Faith must have works if you want to grow. See, you can, you can hide all you want from COVID or you can stay home for months at a time. But be a part of the body of Christ, Christians. Get involved in your local body of believers and start living out your faith. If you want to mature, if you want your faith to be stronger, without works, your faith is useless, ineffective for both you and others. And the contrast is between useless faith and mature faith. And mature faith serves brothers and sisters in Christ. And look at the result of this at the end of verse 23 in the life of Abraham. He demonstrated his faith by good works. And what was he called? A beautiful thing. I wish I could be called this. Well, I am. We all are. He was called a friend of God. That's beautiful. It took 25 or more years from when Abraham believed the promise of God in Genesis 15 to demonstrate works. And if you interpret this passage the way that the Reformed people do today, which is what you're going to hear in 99% of the churches as you travel through Alaska, Abraham didn't show evidence of his salvation, genuine evidence of his salvation for 25 years. And was he really truly saved? Notice with me, when Abraham's faith matured enough to act in trust and offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22, what was his reward? He was called a friend of God. Over in Isaiah 41, in verse 8, God himself, God himself speaks of Abraham, my friend. That's awesome. Abraham had the great privilege of having God accept him as a friend. See, Abraham obeyed God, lived it before men. He lived it out. He lived it before men. And then God drew Abraham into even closer fellowship with him. And James wanted believers to recognize the amazing privilege that you and I have of having fellowship with a holy and righteous God in heaven. Same fellowship that Abraham enjoyed. Obedience to God 
during a test in his faith, drew him closer to God. See, that's why trials come sometimes. It's so we can draw closer to God. But had Abraham not obeyed God in the greatest test of his life, in Genesis 22, he still would have been justified by the faith he had in Genesis 15. He still would have been heaven-bound, but by allowing that faith to be alive in his works, he attained a position where millions of people today around the world look to him as an example of faith, and he's still known today as a friend of God. Only God could see that faith at first, but all men would be able to say his love for God. They'd see it when he stepped forward, willing to sacrifice his only son. Hebrew tells us that while he was offering Isaac to God, Abraham considered that God is able to raise the dead. He was showing his faith. He was justified works before men, Romans 4.2. And when a person believes the gospel, when they have faith in Christ, they're justified by that faith and they receive the unqualified gift of eternal life. And only God can know and see that spiritual transaction. Only God sees what's going on in the heart. But when you're justified works before men, here's what happens. You achieve that intimacy with the Lord that is manifest to others. And then remember this beautiful promise in John 15, 14. Jesus said this, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. In verse 24, the language switches. And this is, again, one of these ways we know this is the right interpretation that we're supposed to be heading down. It says you, plural. It's a very key piece of information for the correct interpretation. You, plural. The plural indicates that the hypothetical conversation is now over. It's over. And the real question to answer here is justified before whom? Does God, let's ask it this way. Does God need to see your works in order to know if you have faith? No, no, that'd be foolish. Can people see your faith, Christian, apart from some demonstration by your words or works? No, we can't. See, James is talking about justification before men. He's talking about a practical expression or outworking of faith by a believer in Jesus Christ who has already been declared righteous by a holy and perfect God in heaven. It has an expression of faith that results in works that are profitable to others and demonstrable before men. James is again speaking to the brethren, not about salvation, not about eternal life, but about the natural connection that should be there with works and faith. It should be there, Christian. Works encourage others. Works encourage others. I tell you what, when people get involved in the local body of Christ, it encourages me greatly. I feel like I'm not alone in this battle. Work encourages others. You see it too in your own life when you see Christians stand for Christ, don't you? You see some Christian out there in the news that's being persecuted for their faith, and they stand up and say, no, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. That encourages. Works give a good testimony. That's why, Christians, it's not just a show one hour a week or once a month, whatever you feel like going. It is a good testimony. It's a part of the body of Christ. It's a part of life in Christ. They build up others in the faith. This is justification before men, the challenge to believers to live a consistent life with what you say you believe. If you say you believe it, live it, Christians. If you say you believe it, live it. Live it. If you believe in Christ who died for your sins, live like it. Now, it is not, to be careful here, like the Reformed Church teaches, it is not live like it or you will go to hell. James never talks about heaven or hell in the book of James. 
James never says a man is justified by faith plus works. And he never combines faith plus works into one type of justification. He says there's two types of justification. One seen by God, one seen by men. One is justification by faith, one is justification by works. And then there's one more example from James, our last two verses. Or he says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, we'll be careful with that. We'll come back to that. So faith without works is dead also. Rahab is another great example, a great example from the Old Testament, a beautiful example of the point that James is trying to make. See, from a human point of view, if you're looking at this and you're saying from a human point of view, the contrast between Abraham and Rahab could be greater. It really could not. It couldn't be a stronger contrast. Here you have this Gentile harlot with faith and the great father of the Hebrew faith. Her life was physically saved because she had works. She was not killed when Joshua's army took Jericho. But James doesn't say here Rahab was saved by faith plus works. James tells us, like Abraham, Rahab was justified by works in front of others. She was justified first by God, by faith. She came to believe that the Hebrew God was the one true God, Hebrews 11.31. And then Rahab then risked her own life in the book of Joshua. Why? To protect the men of Israel. She was justified by her works before the nation of Israel. And meaning this, her actions were consistent with her faith. Her actions were consistent. And then think of the final words here in this verse. A body dies when it loses the spirit. See, if you take away a, a person's spirit, what is left is not really alive. If, if you take away the good works, it, it loses something. It dies, meaning this, again, ineffective, useless. It becomes ineffective. Active faith, active Christian faith requires works. But when you don't live it out, your faith weakens little by little, and you drift away from Christ. Nothing is left but a corpse that, that may believe all the right things. But works demonstrate that you have, have life in Christ. Works demonstrate that your body is alive. Works demonstrate that your faith is alive. Works do for our faith what the Spirit does for the body. They animate. The Spirit gives life to the body. And works animate our faith. They bring faith to life. Both the dead body and the dead faith were alive at one time, meaning they were useful. Mature faith produces good works. Mature faith gets involved in family life in the body of Christ. And they were alive at one time, meaning useful. Mature faith does that. Mature faith, good works, strengthens faith. It's not that our actions validate our faith. Be careful with that. Be very, very careful with that. Actions do not validate our faith. That is a big misunderstanding in the church today. Because actions can never validate faith. Faith is valid by itself. Do you hear that? Faith is valid by itself. You either believe something or you do not. Works can give some evidence, but they cannot validate your faith. Works are the natural outgrowth of your faith, but they cannot prove whether or not faith is really there. So the works, the works we do before men, justification before men, is not intended to be a validation of the genuineness of saving faith. It is intended to be the outpouring of our relationship with God. Do you hear the difference? Rahab was saved by faith, but her actions saved the lives of men. It had a practical benefit 
It was useful instead of useless. It was useful to others. It's like saying, what good is a driver's license if you never drive a car? The life of a believer without works is not natural. It's not natural for Christians to stay home all the time. It's not natural for Christians to skip the church. It's not natural for Christians to not come to church and get encouraged and be a part of the family life of believers in Christ. It's not natural. Works are meant to be lived out within the body of Christ. That's what James is talking about. It means when you don't live out your works, when you don't live out your faith, it means a slide towards a death-like existence. Dead faith is a person still saved by faith, but not living by that faith now. I like the story of a young Christian who had heard about an older man who had never lost his first love for Jesus Christ. And over all those years, this man had remained faithful to his relationship with Christ. And these type of people just encourage you. So the young believer wanted to seek him out. He wanted to know what was going on with this guy. He wanted to learn some things. He wanted to learn more about remaining faithful to Christ. Don't you want to learn more about remaining faithful to Christ? I sure do. Well, the old man was sitting on the porch with his dog taking in a beautiful sunset. And the young man posed the question, Why is it, sir? that so many Christians zealously chase after God during the first year or two after conversion. But then they fall into complacent ritual and end up not looking any different than their neighbors who aren't even Christians. Well, the old man smiled at this and just said this. He said, one day I was sitting here quietly in the sun with my dog, and suddenly a large white rabbit ran across the field in front of us. And my dog jumped up and took off after that big white rabbit. He chased the rabbit over the hills with a passion. He ran after that thing with a fury. And soon other dogs joined him because they heard his barking. And what a sight it was as the pack of dogs ran across the creeks, up the stony embankments, and through the thickets and the thorns. And gradually, one by one, the other dogs began to drop out of the pursuit, discouraged by the course frustrated by the chase. Only my dog continued to hotly pursue the white rabbit. And then he told him, in that story, young man, lies the answer to your question. Sounds like something Yoda would say. The young man sat in confused silence. Finally, he had the courage to speak up and, and say this, sir, I don't understand. What's the connection? What's the connection between a rabbit chase and a quest for God? And then the old man told him this. He said, you failed to understand because you failed to ask the obvious question. Why didn't the other dogs continue in the race? And the answer to that question is that they had not seen the rabbit. Now, I want you to walk this through with me carefully. Here's what James is teaching us. Unless you see the prize, Christian, the chase is too difficult. The chase is too difficult. You will lack the determination under your own power to keep up the chase. You can't live for Christ on your own strength. You can't live for Christ without the body of Christ. You can't live for Christ without the Holy Spirit working in you. Never once, never once does James question whether the rich or poor in James 2 were saved. And he never once admonished them in James in such a way that that would cause them to question whether they'd been saved. He doesn't tell them they're not saved. Wouldn't you think if they weren't saved that James would say, hey, you're not saved? You'd think. Wouldn't it be that simple? He doesn't say that. 
Wouldn't you think he'd give them the plan of salvation? Wouldn't you think if he thought they weren't believers, he'd give the gospel? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them the gospel. He doesn't give them the plan of salvation. He doesn't say Jesus Christ died and rose again for your sins. He does not say that. He doesn't warn them of false assurance. He doesn't go over the basis of saving faith. He doesn't do that. He treats them like believers and says it 15 times. Why is that so hard for us? Because, like a tree in the wintertime, not knowing if it's dead or alive, we cannot tell, and hear this point, we cannot tell if someone is without faith or if they're just acting with impure faith, acting like the person they were before Christ. Because we may or we may not see the fruit, but God sees the root. God knows whether there is faith there. So be careful trying to judge what we cannot see. Be careful trying to judge what we cannot know. James was not saying good works are needed to keep you from going to hell. He was not saying that. But he did say good works are needed to keep us from falling into spiritual apathy, which can lead to a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Yes, it will. People misunderstand James. And I want you to hear this point as we close in a minute. People misunderstand James when they think the point is that James is teaching people don't endure because they don't see God. That's not what James is about. Addressing believers in Jesus Christ, he's saying they drop out of the race because they don't see the prize of walking with Christ, abiding in the promise of future rewards in heaven. And that is the plague of the Western church. This is the message of James. Living in light of the coming judgment seat of Christ and knowing that works, works, how you live it out can ignite your faith in Jesus Christ. It really can. Works bring fire to our faith. When we start living it out, it ignites it. God delights to increase the faith of his children. Instead of wanting no trials before victory in our lives, we ought to be willing to take the trials from God's hands as an opportunity to grow. See, trials and obstacles and difficulties in life and sometimes defeats, these are the very food of our faith when we go through those difficult things. So take these trials in your life, Christians, from the hand of God as evidence of his love and his care for us and developing more and more that faith which he's seeking to strengthen in each of us. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.